You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I am well, Giles, and we had the first uh, touch of spring here in uh, in Sydney, uh, which is, uh, I don't know, I like spring. What do you think? <laughs> well, it's better than winter as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes, our first day of spring was actually um, looked very much like summer um, up here in northern New South Wales. It kind of had that hazy look towards it, um, quite warm. Um, um, things looking pretty dry, but then we had a bit of a downpour last night, so fingers crossed. And look, I guess the uh, Australian energy market operator will also be keeping its fingers crossed for um, to avoid any sort of dramatic weather situations. It came out with its electricity statement of opportunities this week. Um, long-awaited document. Well, look, actually, David, if you go back 10 years ago, no one really gave a toss about a couple of people who might have been interested in building a coal or a gas generator sometime in the future. But um, they kind of gained a lot of interest um, about five years, six years ago when Hazelwood started closing down and there was warnings of possible um, shortages if not enough generation was being built. Um But the latest one is probably the most benign for the last couple of years. It it shows no uh, reliability issues, no um, overstretching of the um, unserved energy requirements, which actually have been tightened up quite significantly in the last couple of years, most notably in New South Wales, despite the closure of Liddell, most notably in Queensland, despite the absence of Calide Sea, and also in Victoria, although the big risk there seems to be another big flood um, and um, the Morwell River um, reclaiming its natural route through the middle of the Yulon coal mine, which might cause a few problems. <laughs> David, I feel like I've been talking too long. Um, what did you see in the ESU that struck you? Well, I, I, I think we should take your initial comment first, that, that this document is just so much uh, more professional than, uh, you know, 10 years ago. It's like an order of magnitude, more work is done in the document now. Formerly, it just used to have a a, a long list. um, um, AIMO would say demand was increasing steadily. Uh, There's a long list of coal and gas proposals, generally speaking. Um, and, and that would be it. And, you know, as an analyst, you'd look at it and say, well, none of those coal and gas things, are, there's a long list, but none of them will get built. And then you turn around and look at the networks that were trying to say how low their revenue would be and how low volumes would be so they could get higher prices. And you would think that everyone talked their book, um, which, of course, they do. But these days, AEMO is infinitely more uh, professional. And as I said, the amount of work is far greater. Now, the comment I want to make is that the focus is very, very rapidly switching away from the problems with insufficient um, energy at the time of maximum demand uh, towards coping with a system where minimum demand is falling uh, off a cliff. So uh, perhaps the best graph or the most interesting to me graph in the document was one that showed uh, minimum demand on the NEM. Uh, it's figure two, which is uh, 16,000 megawatts in 2016. 
In 2021, it's fallen to 13,000 megawatts. And within the next five years, it's forecast to fall down towards, uh, I don't know, 5,000 megawatts, 6,000 megawatts. So from, from 13 uh, to, to six within five years. Now, uh, there are a lot of consequences of that, and that's due to rooftop solar, to, in the, you know, really causing it in the middle of the day, particularly in late spring. But mm. uh, 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 the consequence, Giles, is that it's just going to put all these uh, ramping pressures on the existing thermal generation and shows the fundamental flaw with the capacity system is that it doesn't really think about how to manage the daily ramp of minimum demand up towards evening demand, which is going to be thousands of megawatts every single day. Absolutely. Yeah, we might actually get onto that capacity markets um, sometime soon because we've actually got an excerpt from the webinar we held this week with um, Anna Collier from the AMC, Matt Keane from New South Wales Energy Minister and Simon Corbell uh, from the Clean Energy Investors Group um, talking about some of the issues that are raised through the Energy Security Board review of rules. Just want to focus just a little bit first, though, David, on that minimum demand that you're talking about. And as you say, it's driven by rooftop solar. And that graph, I think you might have been referring to, it might be the same. It's talking about rooftop solar actually providing up to 77% of overall demand. I mean, that is truly, in the middle of the day at least, um, rooftop solar is king. One of the issues at the moment is that it's largely uncontrollable or unorchestrated. And it was interesting to see... The emphasis that that report was actually putting on all the sort of issues around rooftop solar, um, making sure the, um, the almost the forgotten part of the energy security board proposals, which is distributed energy resources, and particularly the social license, because what the market operator is talking about now is the need to actually come inside the house. It's not just the rooftop panels, um, not just delivering sort of power to the um, the pole and to the outside of the house to the meter, it's about the sort of the rooftop solar, the battery storage, the electric vehicles that are going to be parked in the garage may also be plugged in, plus all the appliances, a whole new concept in virtual power plants and demand management. And that's going to, you know, people struggle just with sort of what have been relatively simple bills, del deliberately made complicated over the last couple of years. But by gee, it's going to be a lot harder in the future when we've got all these different appliances operating and coming and going bi-directional to, to two different directions. And um, goodness knows how many different That, that is options. what bi-directional is. Yes, uh, Charles, two different directions. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> no, no, in case anyone was in doubt. Uh, look, it is going to be more complex, and if it's complex, the average user won't uh, won't it won't work for the average user. So I can tell you, one of the things will be that it will be made relatively simple because at the end of the day, uh, although our many listeners uh, love talking about electricity, the fact is most people couldn't give a stuff about it. Um, <laughs> and, 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 well, they might, but but they might if they've got a battery in the garage or they've got an electric vehicle in the driveway and um, all these other things. They might become more interested, but maybe not. You know what, Giles? We should shouldn't talk about humour, but it, we used to have door-to-door uh, -door salesmen as electricity retailers encouraging a huge amount of churn. But can you imagine the door-to-door -door salesman with a load of batteries driving, <laughs> bring them round from house to house? <laughs> I feel sorry for the guys. But anyway. Um, um, it's just been banned in Victoria, actually, door-to-door -door, door -door selling, for um, at least for rooftop solar systems. So I don't think that's on the agenda anymore. But anyway. <laughs> uh, um, look, the, the using the rooftop solar, it is fantastic. It's an absolutely wonderful resource. And of course, 
we always have to be careful about AMO and everyone else's forecast because the incredible tendency is just to forecast what was happening last year into this year and then into the indefinite future. Uh, and if we look at the great data that Warwick Johnson uh, kindly shares uh, with Renew Economy uh, every month, we can see that right now for COVID and various reasons, actually uh, the, there is a slowdown in the rate of rooftop installations. And what you never know as a forecaster is whether it's the start of a new trend or, or, or just a blip. And uh, I think you've also uh, published various articles noting that costs are maybe not falling as fast as they used to be. Uh, and so we have to be careful about it. I mean, I do my own numbers based on a relatively conservative, I think, two gigawatts a year. So that's still 10 gigawatts. So it is an incredibly powerful force and uh, making use of it uh, is going to be very important. And as I said, there are the technical aspects, which are unquestionably AEMO's responsibility. That is the provision of frequency and inertia uh, uh, and making sure that all those things are available at these times of tremendous uh, inverter-based generation. And, and you and I think we can do that with batteries and uh, uh, that is we, the, I, I, the system can do it with batteries and grid forming inverters. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, the other problem is, is, is sort of working out uh, um, the, the, the dispatchable side of it and how all that's going to work. And sorry, I wanted to finish by saying that it could be the prices as things stand, right? If we just ignore the technical side of it, we look at the energy price, it's at the moment, it's going to be zero in the middle of the day for, for, for months on end. And that, I mean, we're already seeing that this spring. I don't know if you look at the electricity price data, but it was like minus $30 today for periods in Queensland. And then it shoots up in the evening. So this is this, uh, if we left it to the market, the argument might be that someone would come along and build batteries, would build hydrogen, would build pumped hydro that could soak up all that excess uh, solar and um, that's that's the sort of thing for the designers at the moment to say, how much of a problem is these zero price intervals and this apparent surplus of excess uh, power in the middle of the day actually going to be? Or is it, in fact, a wonderful system asset that will make sure we get cheap prices in the evening as well? Well, indeed. Um, and we might actually get to that, particularly about the ramping and the flexibility um, things, because that's the first of the questions that I asked um, Anna Collier, which we'll play very shortly. But one of the other big themes of this um, ESU report was, of course, we've been hearing Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor sort of bang on about um, we need a capacity market because coal is so important to keep the lights on and coal even encourages renewables, if you can believe an AFR headline. Um, <laughs> it's quite funny, really. Um, well, no, it's a bit tragic. But um, I mean, um, AEMO and Daniel Westerman, the new CEO, made it very clear that um, the, the generators are getting old, they're getting less reliable, there's been more problems. The Australian they energy have to go, Giles. They I have mean, to go. Uh, What's the point of paying them to stay? Well, the, 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 because we do have to make sure there's enough dispatchable generation in place uh, in front of each coal generator closing. And it's... You know, I'm not. It's not clear to me the way these the design and the fights we're having about this capacity market. I mean, the design of it's not even assuming we actually end up with it, which I'm far from confident uh, we will. Is it's still at least 18 months away? I mean, a coal generator could close in two years' time. <laughs> Before the, you know, it's 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 it, we're not keeping up. 
No, we're not keeping up. And look, and exactly on some of those points that um, these are some of the questions that we put um, in the webinar this week. Um, um, who rules the market? So we had um, Anna Collier from the AMC, the chair of the AMC. We had um, New South Wales Energy Minister Matthew Keane and uh, ACT, well, the former ACT Climate Energy Minister Simon Corbell, who now heads the Clean Energy Investors Group. And my first question is to Anna Collier. Let's have a listen. Anna, a lot of the questions have been about the environmental objective. Um, just briefly explain, why don't we have one and how hard and how different does it make the rulings that the AMC makes, the fact that there is not one? Um, as to why it's not there, actually, that we'd have to go back into the annals of time to understand what the drafters were thinking originally. But I guess in the 1990s, they felt that economics and environment were two different things, which is different to how we think about it now. Shame on them. From, I mean, from the AMC's perspective, and I know that each of the market bodies actually feel differently about this, but, you know, we look at the context in which we're making our uh, decisions. We need to um, act in the best interest of long, best long-term interest of customers. Like, we can see that all of our jurisdictions now have a form of uh, net zero target, and that is the context in which all of our decisions are being made. So we are uh, working towards enabling that. Um, I think the difference would be that the AMC doesn't see itself as driving that, but we see that the jurisdictional policies have been now put in place to do so. So for us, when I think about the work we're doing in essential system services, for example, like there, it's all being based on the fact that we've got this transitioning grid and we want to ensure that it transitions in a way that best um, meets the needs of customers uh, from a reliability and security perspective. So... While I think um, having it there would um, certainly enhance our ability to do that, and I think it makes probably more of a difference, as I said, to some of the decisions that are made by our counterparts, we really feel like that is the direction in which all our decisions are heading in any case. Let's hope so. Look, another question for you and then, then straight over to the Minister, I think. Um, a lot of questions about the capacity markets and the way they've been framed. So I've got like a two-part question which kind of summarises what people are saying. One, were you a bit disappointed in the way that the capacity markets are often portrayed in the media? It's essentially, let's keep coal there because, strangely enough, it might be good for renewables, but it seemed to be all about payments for coal plants. And a lot of people are suggesting, like, you know, to what extent can they be based not so much around capacity, but in response time and ramping rates. I think what they're talking about there is a flexibility market. Have we got the terminology wrong in the first place and the descriptions wrong? And to what extent do your proposals allow for it to be more focused on the flexibility side of things, new technologies or the capacity, which is the old technologies? That's a really interesting way of thinking about it and articulating it. I hadn't thought of that before. So, yes, I mean, I think the ESB report is very clear that this is around um, that transition to net zero and getting the right mix of technology so that we have a secure and reliable system. And it's the complement to the variable renewables that are most important. And so some of the work that we've also been doing at the AEMC in relation to an operating reserve, which is the, the thing that will uh, organise resources in real time, has been looking at what are the kind of resources that we need in the market and that would feed into then how are we designing our capacity mechanism so that we have that right mix of resources. So I do find it um, uh, that it, uh, a sort of a black and white view of it is perhaps unhelpful because I think what we're doing is um, more complex than that. And I do think it's looking to that future and designing something that's gonna help us move there and then operate in that future state. Well, Minister, um because you said earlier that you're a bit worried about losing some of your coal capacity earlier than you would have thought. Um, but 
can we have a mechanism? How do you actually sort of strike then a mechanism that does a bit of both, rewards, keeps coal in for as long as you need to rally the troops and get everything built, but also to actually provide that incentive for new investment, all those technologies. I mean, you have your own particular roadmap and maybe you'll have to go it alone, like as other states don't necessarily have that. And as a nation, as a national grid, we have to push forward to encourage those new technologies and not favour the existing ones overly much. Well, Charles, as I said, we've got a mechanism to ensure that we get the new infrastructure built and to encourage investment in New South Wales. Um, uh, what we don't have is a mechanism to ensure that we have an orderly transition. And uh, to answer your question, I think what we need is some kind of ability to directly negotiate with the ex owners of existing uh, assets, uh, like the Victorian government did with your lawn, uh, to ensure that we all get certainty about what the time horizon is with regard to the closure. So I think um, in the current environment, uh, the best way to um, keep the existing stuff in is not a, um, a market mechanism. It would be a, a direct contract or that would facilitate a managed exit of that plant. I interpret that as saying that you're not really in favour of the PRRO, which I think you've actually said. So you'll do a Victoria type deal and let's move on with those new type of markets, like a flexibility type market then. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to preempt where the energy ministers might land, but uh, to use Simon's language, I've made some, provided some pretty clear guardrails to the ESB uh, when consider designing up uh, what New South Wales would like to see happen. I see Trevor St. Baker's on the line. He's the part owner of um, Vales Point. So maybe you can both send me a number and we can kind of work it out before the, uh, before the webinar is over. Well, he, he's a great fan of mine. I mean, uh, you know, he bet on Mark Latham as the guy that could stymie the energy roadmap and he failed. So I'm not going to be in the pocket of vested interest like Trevor St. Baker. My uh, role is to make decisions in the community interest. And let me tell you what's in the community interest in New South Wales, getting access to the cheapest form of reliable, clean energy in the world. And that's what our roadmap is going to achieve. Okay, um, I was actually quite serious that Trevor was on the line. And he's got a question for you, Simon, which is, um, why are you saying that there should not be a premium on capital for renewable investment in Australia, when Australia already has a five times per capita uptake of solar and wind than any other comparable interconnected electricity supply system? Well, I just don't, as a group, we would say, Giles, that we don't believe that in the Australian market, development of solar and wind uh, should be more expensive than it is in other comparable markets. Uh, and the reason for that is that this is a, a competitive global environment. Uh, our members deploy their funds across multiple economies uh, and they make judgments every day uh, about whether or not an investment in a wind farm in the US uh, should be given priority, for example, over a development of a wind farm in Australia. If the cost of capital is higher, if the cost of equity is higher, uh, then and if the, and therefore the risk is higher in the Australian market, then um, they will make a, a judgment about what is the most suitable place uh, to invest their funds. And as a, an investor group, we don't want Australia to miss out. We mm -hmm. don't want Australia to miss out on the level of investment it requires. And we don't want consumers to be paying more than they should uh, for the transformation that we that has to occur. Uh, so for all of those reasons, Giles, that's, that's why we say 
of what we say around cost of capital and cost of equity. Let, let's be really clear. There's, a, there's an enormous rebuild that has to occur in the MEM. If you look at the step change scenario, which our members have said is the, the best scenario from their perspective when it comes to planning for transition, um, there is around 50 gigawatts of new build wind and solar that has to be built between now and around 2040. Uh, at the moment, there's only three gigawatts of projects committed in terms of commitment from investors to proceed in the MEM. So that is an enormous gap of uh, you know, 48 odd gigawatts that still needs to be built. And we're not gonna get it built unless investors can deploy funds with confidence and unless we can reduce uh, the cost premium, the risk premium that investors are currently experiencing, which is causing them uh, to pro increasingly prioritise other markets over the Australian market. Can I throw back quickly to the Minister before giving it back to Paul? Um, you've had two enormous responses to your re renewable energy zone um, EOIs, 27 gigawatts, I think, in the Central West, 34 in New England. I mean, that's yeah, and there's 60 gigawatts, um, probably all in two places. Um, with this interest, are you proposing to possibly fast track the rollout of some of the other um, renewable energy zones? What can you do to seize upon that, um, that enormous amount of supply? Well, I think people are voting with their feet, as we saw. I mean, recently the Central West Renewable Energy Zone or the New England Renewable Energy Zone was oversubscribed eight times. I mean, you know, a lot of the naysayers were saying, oh, you know, we're scaring off investment. We're quite the opposite. So, yes, I, I think we want to take advantage of this opportunity. And uh, that brings me to the opportunity that uh, Project Energy Connect presents, which has just been approved. Uh, that'll enable us to potentially fast track the opening up the Southwest Renewable Energy Zone as well and bring that uh, renewable energy into the market far sooner than we're envisaging. So, um, to Simon's point, uh, we've got a plan to get 12 gigawatts built. Uh, we're still short of the 50 that the NEM's going to require, but um, the rate we're going, um, and with the, uh, I guess, the speed at which the other states are moving in this and um, looking at Queensland potentially, uh, we could really capitalise and um, uh, see a lot more investment infrastructure opportunities and jobs coming into New South Wales as a result of the policy settings that were put in place. Mm. Paul, do you have some questions that you've um, plucked from the uh, from the inbox there? Yeah. So um, one of the I guess one of the questions actually has picked up on the um, the electricity supply outlook, um, and it talks about I guess the minimum demand over the next five years is going to lead to some issues, particularly with the high uptake of renewables. Well, sorry, rooftop PV specifically. Um, and I guess the question, maybe this is for you, Simon, is how will the sector attract long-term investment with the combination of these forecasts, the gigawatts that are already coming aligned in the next five years and uncertain retirement dates for tra traditional generators? I guess I should add that the AEMO's um, outlook does talk about EVs and hydrogen as new medium-term loads, of course, that, are, that will change that. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And uh, this is an important question, but not one where we would say that there is a, it's an either or proposition. Um, clearly, the uptake of distributed energy resources is uh, a trend that is only going to continue uh, as households take advantage of low technology costs to themselves um, uh, achieve um, lower electricity bills in terms of their own uh, household consumption. 
and indeed commercial and industrial users will continue to do that as well. Um, but what we're talking about is not just uh, not just the, the residential market. We're also talking about large elements of the market which are reliant on grid supplied electricity, uh, particularly industrial users and the very large uh, commercial users. Uh, combined, they are the, um, the largest component uh, of, of the NEM. So uh, we would say that there will continue to need to be very significant investment in utility scale generation uh, to meet the requirements, particularly of a decarbonising economy and the electrification of significant parts of the economy, uh, including, as, as you highlight um, in uh, the ESO uh, conclusions from AEMO, uh, EVs, hydrogen manufacture, but also electrification of significant parts of industry that currently rely on other energy sources. So these combined uh, really highlight the fact that we will continue to need very significant build out of new build uh, utility scale, uh, in addition to the ongoing upward trend uh, of DER, particularly in the household sector. And that was uh, Simon Corbell um, from a Clean Energy Investors Group um, wrapping up that sort of excerpt from our webinar, which also included Matt Keane, the New South Wales Energy Minister, and AMC Chair Anna Collier. A um, couple of things, couple of takeouts from those, um, David. One was it was quite clear from Matt Keane's um, um, comments that um, he's not a great big fan of these new capacity markets. And in fact, he's even talking about having direct talks with the coal generators in the same way that Victoria did with Yulorn um, to say, okay, what do you need to sort of stay on for at least this time so you just don't disappear from the market um, before we've got everything prepared. And I was a little bit surprised by um, Anna Collier's sort of, um, I'm, I'm also talking about the sort of the ramping and the flexibility and she goes, oh, hadn't thought about it in that way before. I went, oh, really? <laughs> Oh, well, actually, I think to be fair, uh, um, you know, that the, uh, I agree with what Matt Keane said at a different part in that webinar. It was a great webinar, by the way, and I was also incredibly impressed with the uh, knowledge of the lawyer partner of the law firm. Uh, Paul Kurnow. Paul Kurnow and his absolutely tremendous uh, command of all every fact and his ability to sort of mention them without seeming to... Uh, seeming to uh, say anything, but but uh, but he did, and I mean the point is there is a full set of new brooms uh, really at, at the organisations, uh, the AER, the AEMO, uh, um, and the AEMC. Uh, not yet any change at the ESB, and uh, I think over time these people will bring a very fresh and constructive approach to it. I'm actually pretty confident myself. Uh, but uh, I have to say, I could be quite wrong, but that's that's my opinion is that it will, things are moving very much in the right direction. Uh, it's not, it's difficult for the AEMC to take views on technical matters without doing a lot of uh, uh, discussion and analysis and work groups, you know. I mean, in the end, the AEMC is basically a legal body. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, I didn't want to sort of pick on the AMC and things like that. So, but where are we going to be heading then with the ESB stuff? Because Matt Keane's made it quite clear that he doesn't like the direction that Angus Taylor wants to drag it in. Um, even Angus Taylor has admitted in his conversations um, with the media that every state seems to be at a different stage. It's almost as though, I mean, the, the webinar, webinar finished with us asking, well, what would you do if you were in the position of sort of, you know, great power and federal energy minister? Well, set a target, make sure that we're all going down the road together. 
um, but this seems as almost as difficult as this to to follow that path with COVID. Um, every state has its own agenda, and how you actually structure a market that sort of you know fits in everyone's well, well, needs. Well. Well, Giles, I think New South Wales at the moment is entitled to go its own way. I mean, I've said a lot of times that Matt Keane is doing a great job, but it's not just him. There's a fantastic team there that is developing a strategy in a huge amount of uh, uh, depth and taking questions from investors all along the way and designing things in a way that I think will work. It's It's a much better policy, frankly, than a simple target like, Queensland government has where you don't really know whether they're Arthur or Martha and and they don't know what they're doing half the time they do one thing one day and the exact opposite the next day Uh, or in Victoria where there's a legislated target which works quite well but without a clear plan of of where it's going to end up in terms of the coal generation having said all that I don't like Matt Keane's idea of direct negotiations with each and every coal generator I, I don't think that's a good idea either I prefer to go back to the original blueprint uh, uh, thing where we had Steve Hamilton on, where essentially the coal generators could bid in uh, the price at which they, uh, you know, the, the value of their remaining assets, and we could work out, we could plan, uh, 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 people could bid to close essentially, uh, and, 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 and with a very clear view of when those closes were actually going to occur based on more than just the 50 years operating dates, which is completely useless, really, Mm. uh, um, then we could make sure that we had this dispatchable generation built in place. I mean, you know, what we know, more or less, what's happening in New South Wales now, but in Queensland, you're going to get to 50% renewable, but every coal generator is going to run forever. You know, there's just no plan or concept or... Of how it's going to how how it all fits together, it's just uh... yeah, and, and they're even talking about rebuilding the Calide thing. I mean, that can't be you know that's just just well, they're not talking about it. They are doing that. <laughs> well, that's them. That's dumb. Oh dear. Oh look. Um, look. Some other interesting things. I don't know whether we sort of finished with this subject, um, um, David, but um, we we saw a bit of a, we've seen a couple of um, couple of moves. Uh, we haven't seen much new investment and in, um, announced deals. On new wind farms, but we saw a couple uh, this week. Um, um, Rye Park, which I think um, Jeffy Taylor's from um, Power was on our podcast a few weeks ago, sort of talking about that. Well, they've finally done the deal and Rich Financial Clothes um, ordered um, 66, I think it is, um, six megawatt turbines from Vestas. So that'll start going ahead now. And also the Dulaca uh, wind farm up in Queensland landed a contract uh, for most of its output with Cleanco and RES, who have been developing that, um, putting all that whole package together, has sold it to Octopus, which is a UK company, which is coming in with quite big plans. Um, so, so, so Charles, I think that the techno nerds uh, would probably uh, think you ha- we haven't made enough of the fact of these are six megawatt turbines. As far as I know, uh, that power's put in at Rye Park, as far as I'm aware, they are easily the biggest turbines to ever be installed in Australia. I can confirm this, David. Ah, good. Uh, and so that's uh, that shows the technical progress that's going on in wind as well as in solar. Um, you know, we're inching forward on offshore wind as well, uh, but, uh, you know, the economic case for that has still to be made out to anyone's satisfaction. I'm not saying it's not there. It's just not very visible at the moment. And another asset that falls into that category uh, is the mysterious copper string two, um, uh, which is, <clears throat> uh, anyway, I make a bad joke, which I won't. Um, 
<laughs> but I mean, I think copper string too could be a wonderful thing in this opening up of North Queensland. And this is where I get so irritated with the lack of a clear plan in Queensland because North Queensland has this fantastic wind and solar resource. Uh, and it also has lots of industrial loads, which the uh, Queensland minister is so fond of up there. Uh, mm. But it doesn't really have a plan to exploit them properly. At the moment, it's extremely unlikely that there's ever going to be transmission in the, in the near future from the um, far north down, down south. Uh, and so they have to find a way to do it all themselves with like hydrogen or, or putting uh, electricity out to Mount Isa. Uh, and using the firming from the Diamantina power station there to feed back in. Uh, 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 I mean, there's a lot of things that could be done with a, with a clear view of how it was to be done. And I look forward to eventually reading something about that. Yes, it would be good. In fact, it would be great actually to have the Queensland Minister um, for Energy and Hydrogen um, on this podcast sometime soon, and uh, perhaps he can lay out um, just that plan. Um, David, I just want to go back to the offshore wind one, because I just thought that was interesting. Um, in the recent, um, um, oh, what do you call it, all the modelling inputs for the next version of the integrated system plan from AEMA, they identified potentially 40 gigawatts of um, offshore wind resource in Australia. And as you say, the economics of it are not um, entirely clear at the moment, but there's enough developers out there who think that it will be quite clear sometime down the track. So Angus Taylor has not been the greatest fan of wind energy. In fact, he sort of spoke at um, one of Alan Jones's um, anti-wind rallies outside Parliament House before he entered Parliament himself back in 2013. But he seems to be reasonably enthusiastic about the offshore wind um, potential. It's not in his electorate. <laughs> it's not in his electorate. It's over the horizon, like um, some radars. What was fascinating, though, was... Um, that um, it seems to be a bit of a clean-up legislation to sort of clarify a whole bunch of different things which might be happening in Commonwealth waters. So not just offshore wind, but also cables that may be laid down, say, between Tasmania and the mainland for the Marinus project. And also, interest, intriguingly, for the Sun Cable project from the Northern Territory to Singapore, which uh, we wrote a story about earlier this week, uh, which seems to be getting bigger in terms... We haven't got the details yet, but they seem to... Um, they seem to uh, have, uh, they're already at 14 gigawatts and about 20 to 30 gigawatt hours of battery storage. And now they're sort of, it, it sounds like they're preparing to, to announce an even bigger plan. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some green hydrogen in there. So um, we might have to get used to seeing a few a few more sort of braggawatt um, in, uh, projects in, terms of in, in, in the tens of gigawatts. Um, that's kind of where we're sort of be leaning at this stage. Ah, yes. Well, I think for the likes of you and I, Giles, it's not going to make much difference. I mean, it's great to talk about. Um, uh, the bigger the project, uh, the harder it is to get over the finishing line. Um, um, you know, there's also an ammonia conference going on in Australia run by our friends at CWP and, and the like that, uh, you know, an ammonia has potential for big exports, as we've discussed on this podcast. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's still a fantastic amount going on. We didn't get round to talking. I mean, I still think we need to focus for the, for most of us on this uh, rooftop solar. And in particular, we haven't talked about vehicle, uh, vehicles uh, to the grid. We've talked about charging your battery up from the solar in the day. But, you know, the average car battery that we're going to see in an EV is about five times the size of a, a Tesla Powerwall. And there's no reason why it couldn't run. Maybe there is a reason why it couldn't run your house at night. But at the moment, certainly there's no way of doing that. You can't just take your car out and, and, and plug it into the uh, into the in, in, into the system uh, where, where the te where the power wall was going to go. Maybe you can. We'll be able to do that. So, 
you know, there's a lot of uh, thinking that we could do on, along these lines. And, and uh, I, I look forward to, to seeing that area develop. Australia has a world-leading resource. You can't say it often enough in terms of rooftop solar, in terms of the distributed electricity system. We are further down the track in the NEM than any other country in the world. And we've got uh, 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 great opportunities to do more and more with it and, and to be in control of our own destiny. And uh, the, the sooner and harder we get on with it, the, the, the happier I'll be. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, it would probably be good to actually sort of do an update on vehicle-to-grid technology. Um, my understanding is that we now have cars where the manufacturers um, are happy for that to happen. We now have um, wall boxes that actually do that. They're actually quite expensive, but what we don't yet have is agreement on the standards that would control and manage actually how those things happen. Um, we're going to have a couple of electric vehicles released later on this year, including um, the Ionic 5. I hope and... to get one of those, Giles, but, you know, it's going to be later this year. Uh, uh, all this year so far, and we were talking about this in March or something, and uh, we still don't even have a price for the darn thing, let alone availability. We haven't caught up with the latest, the latest episode, uh, the latest um, edition of the uh, the Driven. We've actually given some indicative pricing there. I think there's going to be a long range version come out first, which I think is going to be about eighty thousand dollars, maybe a touch below, and then a shorter range version later on, which will fit quite nicely underneath the New South Wales rebate, which has just come in. So um, you'll have a choice there, David. Go for the more expensive, longer-range one or um, wait for the shorter-range one when you get a $3,000 rebate. But um, anyway, look, that's fascinating because it's going to be vehicle to load, so you can basically sort of run a cable out to the car and sort of empower the house if you really need to, but it's not really what we understand as a vehicle to grid and bi-directional charging, which, as you noted before, is two ways in different directions. Um the just going back to that rooftop solar, it's going to be fascinating to see the work that the AEMO is going to be have to be doing over the next couple of years. One to accommodate that amount of rooftop solar up to 67 percent by 2025, they think, if another nine gigawatts comes into the grid over the next three or four years. And also, that what um, Daniel Westerman uh, talked about in his very first speech since he became CEO in May, which was 100 percent instantaneous renewables. And the point that he made in a discussion I had with him this week was that that scenario is not now a what if, and maybe we better get ready for it. It is now their base case scenario. They fully expect that to happen, and they're going to have to be ready for it because it is going to happen, or they're just going to have to curtail an awful amount of uh, rooftop solar and possibly large-scale wind and solar as well. Well, Giles, I think that's about it. It was an interesting week. Uh, I, I was super impressed with the webinar you you you, you ran with Paul Curno, and uh, and and particularly, you know, I I feel that uh, Simon Corbell speaks very well always and puts things very clearly in a way that I like. And Matt Keane uh, does so, and he's in a position of authority and overseeing uh, what I think is a wonderful plan in New South Wales uh, that's likely to be, but hasn't yet been, well executed. And one of these days we'll get around to talking about the two gigawatts of, uh, you know, greater than eight hour dispatchable capacity that they're um, uh, uh, also going to take tenders for which will essentially have, as I understand it, a straight equity uh, subsidy, you know, essentially part of the price will be paid for by the New South Wales government or part of the cost. But anyway, that's for another time. Um, uh, Absolutely. Yes, no, no, it was good. No, it was actually, it was um, it was great having those people on, as you say, Simon Corbell and McKean speak very well. And it was great to hear Anna Collier as well from the AMC um, um, sort of talking about her vision. Um, so good luck as they all move forward. Uh, look, thank you also to our sponsors of this podcast. Um, 
Evergen and Pylon. If you do want to listen to the webinar, um, if you didn't catch it, we actually had more than 2,000 registrations and uh, well over 1,200 people online at the time. So it was a huge amount of interest. Um, so many of you are listening to this podcast may have already listened to it. If you haven't, you can actually download a recording on our website. Um, David, thank you very much. Thank you to everyone out there. And uh, we'll be back again next week with another episode of the Energy Insights Podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.